Hello and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. And I'm Steve. And today we're joined by a special guest, uh, Audi Surly. Welcome. Hey, how are you, Patrick? I'm doing very good. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. So, um, Audi and I met uh, at a MAGFest probably, what, like almost 10 years ago now? Well, let's see. Were you at MAGFest 4? That was the first one I was at, so that's more than so 10 years ago my now. First one, yeah, that was my first one as well. So, yeah, we met there. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, I mean, we knew each other online, like posting in the same forums before that. You know, we're both big uh, video game music fans, of course. Right. And, um, but like one thing we shared in common, well, not the only thing, but uh, we were both fans of Alberto Gonzalez's music. Um, yes. We and uh, so, I mean, that's what the whole episode is about today. He's one of my favorite mm-hmm. video game music composers. Uh, his output is amazing, particularly on the Game Boy. Um, but I wanted to ask you, did you, were you familiar with his music growing up? Like, did you have any of his games like when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was composer on a lot of these properties that in Europe were very commonplace, uh, especially Northern Europe and, uh, you know, places like Germany, France, Italy. So because of that, Asterix games, Smurf games, Tintin games, all yes. these different licenses, um, would be like buying a Disney game for you guys, you right? Know? Or if, if you want to be cool, the Transformers game, sort of GI Joe's or whatever, right? Um, it was very much like that. But sort of on the flip side of that, like Steve, did you play any uh, Alberto Gonzalez games growing up? I would assume probably not, right? I, I definitely did not. I was uh, no, I, I I can't recall. Yeah, were they even released though? Some of them were right in the US. I think so, but most were definitely for the European markets. So yeah, because I recall that like uh, definitely Asterix. Um, other than Master System games, maybe those were European only. Right. And uh, it wasn't until Game Boy Color that I remember that Gonzalez was kind of uh, more available to the U.S. market. Right. And uh, yeah, so it's it's funny this sort of cultural divide that like Steve and I were not exposed to this growing up, but nonetheless. Um, his music just it holds up it's fantastic so i don't really need to have the nostalgic <laughs> connection to find his music great like it's you know i heard it's the timeless news, it's timeless yeah it's it's if you just generally like the old school video game music sound mm-hmm. uh he has plenty of fantastic stuff to discover i mean like yeah. we we have a bunch of examples queued up for this episode but if someone said like hey you need to use completely different examples i would have been like no problem like i could just yeah. pick i could just pick other songs and i would be equally happy with the selection because uh, there's so many good songs so uh, Alberto Gonzalez has worked on over 60 games, actually I think it's 70 by now, uh, since the late 80s. And though his work history includes graphic design and production, uh, most of his career was based around composing video game music uh, and sound design. His works can be found on over 10 platforms, including ZX Spectrum, Amstrad CPC, MSX, Commodore Amiga, the NES, Nintendo Game Boy, and Game Boy Color, Sega Game Gear, uh, Super Nintendo, Nintendo DS, DSi, and mobile phones. So a lot of different platforms, yes. obviously. With most of his soundtracks, um, they're going to be found on either the Game Boy or Game Boy Color specifically. And so before we dive into his history, uh, especially if the listeners aren't familiar with his music, I think this is a good time to just uh, listen to a brief example. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, an example here from Turok Rage Wars for the Game Boy Color.
So if, if we had to describe what we just heard in his music style, how would we do that? Um, I, th I think like what a defining factor is just, it's really catchy. Like a lot of the songs just have really catchy and memorable uh, melodies to them. And like, he sort of has like a thick sound as well. Like, uh, like for the Game Boy music, you know, and on other platforms as well, it sounds like just kind of like thicker than a lot of other contemporary music. Like I think of like, uh, Castlevania music for the Game Boy, which is not that robust or deep in the sound quality, uh, right. but like Alberto Gonzalez really shines with the sound. Uh, I don't know. Is there? Do you have any other ways to like describe his music? Well, I mean, what you're talking about though is uh, fairly common with European composers from back in the day, um, due to their. I mean, they had a lot of limitations with these different consoles and home computers, so they had to always write these sound drivers and sound software to push out absolutely everything you could just you know beyond the limitations yeah absolutely and the differences here with the europeans and the americans i at least feel back then in the 80s and the early 90s was that the home computer market was much stronger here and in japan of course but yeah here especially you know you have the cx uh, cx zx spectrum mm-hmm and you have the Commodore 64, obviously, and these kinds of consoles and home computers, which just um, lends itself well to that because you can write your own software. And they had fairly primitive technologies behind them. But people like uh, Alberto just had to find ways to be creative about it. And that, in turn, created very deep melodies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like... Um... Like one other, maybe if I had to describe like how his music is written, uh, a pretty like recurring trait is a sort of like offbeat arpeggiated groove. Right, I mean, right. not all of his tracks have it, but it's um, it's like a reoccurring theme where it's it's not quite reggae, it's not reggaeton, it's uh, it's sort of his own thing where it's just uh, it's really groovy. I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> Spanish arpeggios, or... right? Is there yeah. such a thing? <laughs> The arps are definitely like really small, like smaller in like size. Like it's not just like a huge water yarp. They're just like right. kind of percussive and like kind of yeah, like on upbeats, kind of like what you're saying. And I think that's really kind of something that, uh, and through a lot of his style, you hear. Um, and I kind of feel that like some of the other guys do it, but that's kind of like uniquely him. Yeah, because like there's like he uses tons and tons of arpeggios, but it's not like the Comerica or like Codemasters like wall of oh, sound, yeah, yeah. sound oh, arpeggio. Um, yeah. which is a uh, telephone. Yeah. A telephone ringing. <laughs> uh, yeah. He uses lots of arpeggios, but it never sounds like a telephone ringing. I feel like. Yeah. So. Yeah. He knows how to use it and when to use it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so back in 2009, I interviewed Alberto in a series of like email exchanges to learn more about his history. Uh, there wasn't yet a Wikipedia entry for him and not much information I could find. So, uh, the entire thing was like this really cool learning experience where pretty much everything he told me helped build a more detailed profile of who he was and how he got started. Uh, so this episode is going to heavily reference things from that interview, uh, and we'll link that in the show notes. Um, Audi also did an interview with him. Uh, it's in Japanese, but you can actually, it's very <laughs> decipherable with Google Translate. So uh, I, I have the English one, and I just found it in preparation for the show. Oh, excellent. So I'll let you have that, and you can post the English one so people don't have to go through Google Translation. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'll link that in the show notes and I'll like relink it on the Retro Game Audio Tumblr because um, I'm not using that Tumblr very much anymore. But I'm also I'm going to republish my, the interview I did with uh, Gonzalez on there as well. So because um, the site it's hosted on now is kind of like old and uh, you know might die at some point. So I want to. There get is it, a there is a Wikipedia on him today. The whole we should mention. Yes. 
because I wrote that. <laughs> oh, you wrote the Wikipedia page? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> oh, okay, fantastic. It's funny, too, you know, because I looked it up, and um, I saw it, like, cited pretty much, like, two main sources for mm. the entry, and one of them was the interviews I did with him. So I'm like, yes, right. like, I felt like uh, there's something very satisfying about, like, exploring this, like, uh, you know, video game music history and uh, sort of uncovering new territory, new grounds, the stuff that hasn't been talked about yet. So. Right, absolutely. So that's great. Yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, but also on top of that, we've been exchanging, um, you know, questions back and forth more recently. So there's, there's new questions, stuff that's, you know, not necessarily in the old interviews, uh, that's going to be referenced in this episode as well. So, um, excellent. Let's get started. Alberto Gonzalez is from Barcelona, Spain, and he first got hired to work on video games at the age of 16. Uh, he's actually like a pretty young guy. And uh, he stumbled across a mailbox with the name New Frontier on it, and he recognized the name as being the company that made a ZX Spectrum game that he had played called Time Out. And uh, he knocked at the door of their office, which was really just an apartment, and he didn't have much of a portfolio other than some sprite animations uh, and images he had made on his ZX Spectrum computer. And they liked what he saw, and so he just started like working the next day as a sprite designer for them. But Alberto was also lent a copy of Music Box, a music composition software for the ZX Spectrum, which he experimented with. This is actually how he first got started with music in basically any capacity, as he had no formal training prior, and instead learned to make music by ear on computer as a teenager. Uh, his co-workers liked the music he made, and so he quickly began making both the music and graphics for the games he was working on. His first published works of music include MS exports of ZX Spectrum games for the Spanish market, including Altered Beast, Snoopy, Ghostbusters 2, and Power Drift. Uh, and we have an example here from Altered Beast from the MSX. <laughs> But the first original game and soundtrack published by New Frontier that was sculpted by Alberto was a game called Hostages for the ZX Spectrum. Jeez, like you can definitely hear the quality changes from from one to the other. I I was I kind of when we were listening to the track together, I was kind of remarking that I couldn't believe that you know that's his specy work, considering you know that that was MSX. So that's that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, sounds <laughs> sounds really great for the platform. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. Should be noted that, that I think that game Hostages became Rescue on the NES. Oh, so I did not. Alberto know that. did not. Yeah, Alberto right. did not work on the NES port, but. Um, it does use the same music, I believe. That's I'm gonna have to look that up now because that's crazy. I did not know about that. 
was a Kemco game, I believe. Huh. Wow. Wow. That's uh, that's great trivia. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I asked him about his musical influences at the time, sort of expecting to hear like a list of bands and composers from the 70s and 80s. Uh, but instead, he was actually heavily inspired by other video game music composers. Uh, a few people he cited were Tim and Jeff Fallon, Ben Daglish, Jonathan Dunn, and David Whitaker. And like he described them as his references, and but though like he was a particularly bit, like big fan of the Fallen Brothers, he felt that his style was more heavily aligned with uh, the works of Ben Daglish and Jonathan Dunn. So uh, hmm. I picked out an example of Ben's music from another ZX Spectrum game called Switchblade, and uh, you can hear somewhat of a similarity in style to uh, Alberto's work here. become the trivia guy here <laughs> but uh ben daglish actually i met him last year oh awesome and most most people know him from the last ninja one soundtrack okay uh from the Commodore 64 which is fantastic but actually as we're recording today uh, i'm guessing you're going to release this a little bit later but today it's the 29th yes and he was actually uh cleared of cancer today i saw whoa so, fantastic so holy crap Congrats to Ben Daglish. Yeah, yeah congrats. seriously, that that rules. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna have to pick your brain about him a bit more later because I haven't heard much of his music. Um, but like that previous track is one that I uploaded to YouTube because I loved the the file I found for it. And uh, he's a flute player by uh, trade, or he was uh, Ben Daglish. Oh wow! Well, you can hear that in the lead, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. that's awesome. And it's funny, too, because actually I sort of just picked that track at random when Alberto mentioned that, like, you know, he was influenced by Ben Daglish. Right. Um, but I sent, like, Alberto, like, a, you know, rough draft of this episode we're working on because I was, you know, mm. had follow-up questions and stuff like that. And he actually hadn't heard that particular track before. Uh, so it's sort of like the similarity in style. It's like more of like an ingrained thing, but it's not like he listened to that particular track or anything. So. Oh, he hadn't heard it? No, yeah, he hadn't heard that one before. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so Alberto elaborated on being influenced by other game composers and had this interesting quote. I don't remember much about normal music from that time. I was very focused on computer music, probably too much. Now I realize that I should have listened to other kinds of music and learned more about chords and progressions. I was a pure chiptune musician for better or worse. Some people learn music taking piano lessons. I learned encoding my tunes and C80 assembler. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cool. I mean, you have, because you have a generation of people now who are inspired by video game music. You know, people get into composing video game music because it's what they liked growing up. Right. Um, but I feel like Alberto comes from an interesting sort of like time frame where he like gotten really early. It's sort of like he, like, I don't know that there's many composers from the 80s who were also fans of video game music. I mean, there definitely were com like Commodore 64 composers who were, yeah. you know, impressed by the tricks that other people were doing and they sort of because got in that way. But Back then you had the trade circles. Um, so they were like Chris Holzbeck and I'm, I'm guessing Alberto as well. Uh, they all traded, uh, not directly, but everyone was in a trade circle where Commodore 
uh, games and demos and stuff were traded through the mail. So it was shared and kind of, you know, before the internet days, uh, still managed to get the round like yeah, that. Yeah, there was like a, a weird share shareware culture. Right. Um, mm. My dad used to attend, uh, what was it called? Like these Amiga user groups mm. uh, here in the States, <laughs> here in the U.S., which I find funny because it's like, yeah. you know. But um, yeah, it was like what was it called fcog fairfield county amiga users group or something so like i would get these amiga discs and they would have like be like a bunch of random copied stuff i don't know if it was all legit shareware if, if some of it was <laughs> you know pirated or whatever stuff was on those discs but it was funny like playing some amiga games but they would be like labeled like as like coming from a certain meeting that people had so kind of weird well, uh, I want to also touch like we um, we mentioned earlier that like back in those days, people had to push the capabilities of the limited technologies. So Alberto com- comes from that generation where, you know, whereas he didn't learn an instrument, he learned, or he didn't learn a classical instrument musically wise, but he did learn the instrument of technology and kind of working around that. So you know he. He's not less of a musician just because he didn't have piano uh, lessons. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're doing like an episode about him, uh, which, right. you know. Yeah, which is saying <laughs> enough. enough yeah. yeah, exactly. But, um, so, and I also asked him a somewhat blunt, and I don't know if it's like impolite, but, uh, you know, I was curious, like if the pay for his work at the time was any decent. And, How dare you. Uh, right. <laughs> and he said, and as it turns out, it wasn't. Uh, you know, he said like that it wasn't until the end of New Frontier when he co-founded a company called Bitmanagers that he began to get paid properly. And he had some sort of anecdote. You know, he was saying like he thinks from that era or just in general, there's a lot of stories about software developers not really properly paying their employees if paying them at all. So um, I think that's what he went through early on. Um and yeah, I think that marks sort of a good ending to the story of how he got started because it was with bit managers that he had steady work as a composer uh, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. So, uh, yeah, I guess we should talk about how he actually made his game music. Uh, you know, we'll take a little closer look at his work with bit managers in a moment, because uh, there's so much awesome stuff in there. But I really want to talk about the technical process of making game music. Um, because something that was really important to me when I was interviewing him back in 2009 was, like, I wanted to have a better understanding of how exactly his video game music was made. Like, especially the NES and the Game Boy, I felt like those were sort of like black boxes of technology in, in a way. Like, it might be my perspective as an American, but, like, I never saw anything like interviews with NES composers growing up, right? Like, hmm. it's probably maybe it's because they're mostly Japanese or sometimes European, but kind of, like, almost never American. And uh, so there's a sort of, like, cultural divide, at least that's what I assume, like, where, you know, as consumers, things like the NES and Game Boy were incredibly popular here. I mean, like, they're the hmm. most popular systems we had. Yeah, easily, yeah. Um, but, like, we never got much in the way of personal anecdotes from those involved. Like, I don't remember seeing, right. like pictures of dev kits and stuff like that in Nintendo Power. Hmm. Uh, but, but you would see that sort of stuff like in computer magazines about like the computers involved. So I just felt like stuff like the NES and like some of those console systems, like it was something that we were in the dark on, like in it's as far as their history and like the actual technical process, what kind of tools were used. So hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Like, did you have a similar experience like uh, Audi growing up? Like is, uh, was the NES just as vague to you growing up or? I mean, the NES particularly was probably a little bit more vague but 
Um, we had a plethora of game magazines here from uh, UK and uh, sometimes Germany and other places where they had a very strong focus on music, actually. Oh, and wow. And they would interview, uh, especially Commodore magazines, would interview the whole specs and the Jero and Tells and, uh, you know, the Ben Daglich. And also, at times, uh, very rarely, they would get Japanese composers to say a few words. But, uh, yeah, so I actually grew up with a little bit more of a familiarity to the composers, especially European ones, because the independent magazines were bit more keen on getting content like that whereas i'm guessing in the u.s with the nintendo power that was very nintendo driven right I think nintendo owned that right yes so and nintendo is notorious for not really highlighting specific staff right and uh the egms and game pro I'm, I'm guessing they were more into just getting the cool screenshots and early previews but a composer interview, I think they would just look at back then and probably still to this day. When I look at this, some of the gaming websites, it's just kind of like, what is this really cool content? Well, of course, it is for people like us, but right. uh, mainstream wise, maybe it just doesn't bite as hard. Yeah, because I don't know if I can speak on Steve's behalf, but I feel like our exposure to like learning more about composers would be more like almost like reverse engineering like we'll just find files of like nsf files and stuff like that and we'll, we'll, right. we'll just see the composer tag and then we'll google them after the fact but it's like we were not really ever introduced to like you know it's weird it like was never in our culture i feel like right steve right. no I, I i feel like honestly like one of the biggest things that was focused on egm and game pro like magazines i read from the 89 on like you know i had the original game pro eight was it 88 or something i, <laughs> I read all of them and I can tell you it was mostly about graphics. Like, we love our graphics. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, look at this graphics. Look at this, you know. And there wasn't really, you know, even when they did cover some of, in the back, some of them did cover PC games and had a lot of, like, you know, we would call, I guess, PC games, anything that came on a personal computer. Um, There wasn't really any focus on that. Um, Sometimes you'd see that, like, in the back, there'd be like, oh, you know, so this is the game. This is the publisher. This is the composer listed. But it was never like, here's an interview with someone who's interesting. And, and I really feel that that's partially driven by the fact that a lot of the games in the U.S. for a lot of the time they were here were imported. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you just, yeah, you know, like, I mean, you guys had in Europe your own little scene of like guys who are doing this and publishing your uh, Eurocentric titles. We basically we, had the today's indie scene 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. 25 yeah. years ago. Exactly. That's a great so. way to put it. That's an amazing way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah, and so again, yeah, it's it's and it's because of all of this that I was really excited to ask Alberto, like, how did you do it? Because it's well, another thing though mm-hmm. about that is that, you know, the Japanese games had very often uh, synonyms for names. They didn't use their real names because it was a counteract message to so that the companies couldn't go in and take talent from other companies. You wouldn't know who they are. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have like James James Bananas and whatever you have. Right. Or, uh, Yamashita-san. Right, but exactly. <laughs> in Europe, I guess, you know, that mentality didn't really exist. Everyone they were very open to working with each other and it was a very open, you know, indie market. So the games in Europe often had the composer front and center as a selling point. You know, Chris Holzbeck's almost every game he worked on, uh, his name is one of the first to pop up on the title screen. Yeah. Yeah. So, because it was a major selling point. Some games were even built around just the concept that, like, the game fucking sucks, but 
the music's good and it would still sell <laughs> yeah which makes That's sense I, I that you you could sell me on a game for its music at the time for sure so yeah, I, I guess you still could right I, in my case I, yeah. I must admit in the last year i've actually bought a couple of games just because of the music but oh fantastic <laughs> it's funny too because like you say about this uh, the pseudonyms or whatever like mm. i always remember like you beat Mega Man 3 or Rockman yeah. 3 and you get to the end and it says it's by bun bun and i'm like oh man right I yeah. want to meet Bun Who Bun. Is Bun. Who is that? Yeah, yeah, you know. And I was like, Sorry. "Oh, I love this guy. This is the, the that was my favorite soundtrack growing up." And I'm like, "One day I'll meet Bun Bun." You know, right. but like, you know, I didn't know who that was. It wasn't like someone I could look up. There was no resources for it. It was like, you know, eighty nine, ninety or something. You know, so it was there was no one in magazines telling you who Bun 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 is. No. You know, and that was a question I was asking that no one cared about. Well, it's funny too because Alberto Gonzalez actually did have a pseudonym, but for for slightly yeah. different reasons. Uh, his it's a uh, Joe McCalby is how he credited uh, himself in some of the early games uh no outside pressure or anything uh as far as i know it was he was just saying that you know he has a very common name alberto gonzalez is a very common name um yeah there's uh, even the, there's a lot of like politicians and stuff named alberto gonzalez that are a little bit famous so exactly yeah so it's <laughs> it's sort of like uh yeah if you were from the states it'd be like if your name was like john smith or matthew miller maybe you'd want want to like uh give yourself a nickname so you're easier to find or something or easier to identify perhaps but uh there's a quote like on a soundcloud i don't have it queued up so i'm just gonna paraphrase but he's saying like now he realizes that even that nickname was ridiculous so uh <laughs> <laughs> i find it kind of cool actually yeah it's a funny name oh. to come up with like joe McCalby. you know I don't, it's i don't know it's cool <laughs> um so yeah like let's get into how he made his music uh he had a really interesting tool set behind most of the music he made uh, he wrote his own software for the zx spectrum called compact editor which he composed essentially all of his 8-bit music on uh even music into t- to the 2000s he was making with a computer from the 80s oh he was using it that long yeah yeah it's, oh, wow. it's crazy like, yeah he was using it for his game boy color games and everything so <laughs> wow he did use it on game boy advance now that i think about it oh okay yeah yeah i think he used it for his first game boy advance soundtrack so it's interesting to think like you know it's 2001 or something and you're using a zx spectrum to write your video game music uh and so i'll, I'll link to the program he made you can download it uh i'll link to that in the show notes uh, you can run it in a zx spectrum emulator yourself and it was music composition software in the tracker format. Uh, it was inspired by trackers for the Mega computer, like Noise Tracker. Uh, but as you can probably imagine, like the ZX Spectrum doesn't have the same sound chip as the NES or Game Boy or a bunch of the other platforms he composed for. So like his tunes weren't written in full in the compact editor. It's essentially just the notes and melodies and rhythms were tracked out there. Uh, then he converted it into text language that could be adapted to whatever console he was working with. And that's where more of the details, like the instrument data and the shaping of the sound took place. Uh, that's the sort of stuff that had to be programmed in a text file still. So yeah, we have a quote here on like elaborating on his process of making 8-bit music. My entire process of making music for 8-bit consoles can be elaborated as such. First, I used the compact editor to compose the basic idea of the song with its different parts. Later, the song was transformed into source code using the sourcer, and then as a plain text file. I put the small details and riffs into the song, as well as the drum track and the final sound for each instrument. This process was done by changing the source code, compiling, sending it to the console, listening, and so on again and again until it sounded the way I intended. Or I ran out of time. He puts in, you know, I kind of as an aside, which yeah. is really funny. <laughs> I'm sure it happened. 
Um, finally, if required, the compression stage took place, which consisted of finding and reusing small fragments of the songs to make it use the least amount of memory possible. Many times I adapted the sound driver for each game, adding new commands and effects, drum sounds or whatever. It was an evolving thing. I don't know how the other musicians did their soundtracks. I'm still wondering, and I don't think it would be that much different. Well, it's funny because when he says that, I think uh, his method probably is a little unique. Um, it, de- it definitely is. Yeah, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, because I think uh, maybe you you guys know more about this. I would just assume that most people did like MML style stuff. Like, a prob- I mean, it depends on the system you're talking about. Uh, but for like earlier right. chip music, NES stuff, I feel like most people probably didn't bother writing their own tracker. I feel like that's pretty involved. And- In Japan, MML was um, the most common and in europe it depends but a lot a lot of them did have um software that they had written themselves that could be you know poured over in sense like kind of like alberto mm-hmm. it's just not as you know his his thing is so unique in just the sense that like in a way it's such a copy paste style that he just managed to work so well but it's all pasted together with duct tape right and uh, i really love that approach because again it's like working within limitations and creating something so unique and creative which you know because it forced him to think outside the box and that's why his music is still uh, special today oh absolutely and so i wanted to play an example though from the uh, light corridor because uh, this is one thing that this is like a newer thing I want to ask him about because I realized that this is something he probably couldn't have written uh, hmm. with his program um, compact editor for the ZX Spectrum. Uh, I just sort of assume that because it's so different. Uh, what you're about to hear is what people will refer to as beeper music. This was for the earlier ZX Spectrum. <laughs> yeah, this is for Spec. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's the only uh, beeper tune he wrote. The beeper is one bit music. Uh, It's not a sound chip. It's a speaker. And the way you make music for it is you just rapidly shut it on and off. You know, if if you shake something fast enough, vibrate, it makes different pitches. That's the concept behind it. It's it's literally on and off is how you make music through a speaker. Uh, So it's incredibly lo-fi. Like this is the lowest of lo-fi music, but this track sounds awesome. Let's give it a listen. And so I learned from him that the reason he hadn't written more is he got involved with the Speccy uh, ZX Spectrum when it was uh, a bit later in its life cycle. There's a later version of it that had a proper sound chip and everything. Um, but he still, like, as a sort of challenger, he, he sort of took an interest. Like, he, he wanted to at least dabble with it. Although he was, a, he said he was a little embarrassed when I was, like, probing on how it was made. Uh, because that's something where he actually had to steal a sound driver, someone else's sound driver. <laughs> Um, so I, I feel, I think he was like a little embarrassed that like he didn't do everything himself from the ground up for it. So he said, you know, the, co- the tune was composed directly in assembler, uh, but the sound driver he took from Tim Fallon. <laughs> and, uh, so he said he was learning Z80 assembler at the time and he thought it'd be like a great exercise to disassemble the sound driver from one of Tim's great ZX spectrum, uh, tunes. So, you know, he wanted to implement that in the light corridor and he, he tested his like disassembly of, Tim Fallon's sound driver with a fragment of the main track, which is what you just listened to. 
and uh, he didn't intend to use it in the game, but then he was just he was happy with it. So uh, he wound up putting it in the game after all. It was funny though. He says he's talked to Tim Fallon more recently about it, and that Tim had apparently told him that other people had tried taking that sound driver and to adapt it to their own needs, and they were unsuccessful. Um, oh wow! So wow. so it's kind of funny. So he's saying like he's a little embarrassed about I you know maybe it's because he didn't make it himself or whatever. But it's like uh, I, I, apparently that was an accomplishment in itself. So and uh, so I guess when it gets to, like the really technical aspects of uh, how the sound driver worked for that, that's you know we would have to hunt him fallen down or something. But I find that he's he's not hard to find. Oh excellent! Um, <laughs> I, I find that music really interesting because you heard like harmonies and stuff in it, uh, but there's n- there's not multiple channels of sound. You can't play two notes at the same time kind of so but yet you hear it so it's, it's some crazy stuff we'll have to talk about that in another episode uh i believe he also did a soundtrack for the super nintendo right Yeah, that's a good one to bring up because, again, that's like a different sound set. So as you could expect, that was also made with different uh, tools. So Mm -hmm. that wasn't done with Compact Editor. Um, Here, I have a quote from him here. Uh, The one soundtrack he did was Asterix and Obelix. And he says, for Asterix and Obelix, I used Octomed, a well-known Amiga 500 tracker. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and he also used a very basic PC uh, MIDI sequencer. So depending on the song, he used one or the other. Hmm. And he also said that the Super Nintendo development kit had a MIDI in, uh, input, so it worked more or less like a synthesizer in real time. And all the instrument samples were digitized from a Turtle Beach Maui PC sound card. And he says the effects in that game were synthesized on the Super Nintendo using basic waveforms, and others were taken from many sources, which he can't really remember. Um, but yeah, I, that's a weird little tangent to go on too, because. Uh, I know like people today are interested in being able to interface with the consoles in different ways, you know, be able mm-hmm. to hijack them to make music with them today. Um, and like, you can't Google search like a Super Nintendo like development kit and like find an image of like this MIDI interface. <laughs> it's like a lost bit of history. And it, I, I have gone sort of down that rabbit hole a little bit. There right. is like a, a Super Nintendo development site that like lists a bunch of the different dev kits. Um, so like somebody out there knows more about those things or has some documentation for them, but it's not something you can easily look up, you know, by asking about that. That's the first time I'd ever heard of super Nintendo having like a direct MIDI, like play it like a synth in real time, uh, ability back in the day. So I think that's really cool. Well, I think that the super Nintendo soundtrack he did kind of deviated a little bit from his usual style. I'm guessing it's because it doesn't use as many arpeggios, maybe. But I also feel like his compositional style was a little bit more atmospheric, maybe, than melodic for that particular game. Yeah, I think he's probably taking advantage of what you can do with uh, these longer sample sounds. Yeah. yeah. And we'll listen to an example of that uh, later on. He has some good more anecdotes about it, which are pretty interesting. Um, and again, to sort of, I want to pick out all the weird examples now, since the core of this stuff was made with that, uh, program he wrote for the ZX Spectrum, but I want to pick out all the weird examples. (laughs) He also made like Amiga music, um, but he didn't make any for any music for games that were released commercially. Um, so this is like a weird sort of side thing. I didn't know he had done this until more recently. It's posted on his SoundCloud and we'll link to that in the show notes, of course. So I was asking him about that, like how... Why did he make a mega music? Was it just a sort of like set of demo tunes he wanted to make? Um, you know, if he wasn't making it for games that were coming out, and he's saying that they, they just had an Amiga computer at their office, 
it's just kind of hanging out and uh collecting dust so it was like mainly used to check amiga versions of other games they were working on like ports like of hostages in north and south um you know because they did like the 8-bit computer versions of those games so right. that's that's the only reason they had amiga sitting around and uh he said they did almost release a game for that uh, for the amiga called sokoban uh for which he did one track um but he says most of the tracks composed he just made them at the office uh like but years later when the amiga was obsolete and he just like brought it home and made more tracks with it. So and he says he still has it in a box somewhere. Uh, he's owned it since he's like 23, but he, he hasn't <laughs> he hasn't dug it out. So. After his first Game Boy Advance soundtrack, he programmed a synthesizer for PC which faithfully emulated its sound hardware. Um, he wrote it with a MIDI sequencer and could listen back to his music in real time, which is pretty cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So now that we know more about how he made his music, let's take a closer look uh, at the music itself. Uh, we'll start off with some of his earlier computer music. We already heard some music from Hostages, Altered Beast, and The Light Corridor. Uh, but here's another great example from Sokoban for the ZX Spectrum. I think we have another example from Magic Johnson's Basketball for the ZX Spectrum too. There's, I hear a lot of Tim Fallon in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a funny thing, too, because Tim Fallon did the music for Magic Johnson's Fast Break, which is like the same game or same series of games. 
mm-hmm. so I was curious because I know you know Alberto Gonzalez is inspired by Tim Fallon. So I asked him like, oh, did you hear the NES music before you made your version of the game? And the answer is uh, actually no. So it's kind of funny because it's one of the more Fallony sounding Gonzalez tunes that's out there. Yeah. Uh, but they just sort of wound up being a coincidence. Um, uh, so he said they didn't have an NES at the office, and the track was actually based slightly on the original music for the Amiga version. Uh, after composing these tracks, he listened to the Commodore 64 version by Tim. Um, which So Tim also did the C64 version, which is different mm-hmm. from the NES version, and uh, even better, So according to Albert Gonzalez. So he says he wished that he listened to that version uh, first, so he, he would have liked to have based his version on the C64 soundtrack. Oh, wow. And... Uh, and he, he pointed out that it was interesting that Magic Johnson had completely different tracks on each of its versions. Like the Amiga, NES, ZX, and C64, like everyone just wrote their own tunes. And uh, so I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like everyone wanted to write their own original music, you know? And he was he kind of like shot that idea down. He's like, well, no, we just didn't know like what everyone else was working on. <laughs> kinda, <laughs> that's really funny. I mean, that, that was a huge <laughs> paraphrase, like a huge summary. But he was saying that... Um, they had to they bought a pirated version of the amiga game before they did their conversion of it uh because like the publisher from spain didn't send them a copy and uh so there's just in general this sort of lack of communication and again he said he could speak on behalf of the other people you know maybe tim and others working on the other ports did have a communication um but his the sort of impression he had was kind of like everyone was doing their own thing that's why all of the versions had their own soundtracks so I doubt they had any interaction. Right, that's what I'm thinking. I'm sure it was, as it happened to Alberto, I'm sure it happened to everyone else who was working on it, so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty funny. So speaking of the NES, actually, uh, he did um, two of my favorite games on the NES, which is Asterix and Smurfs. Cool, yeah, let's take a listen to, one of my favorite tracks uh, is The Mountains uh, from the Smurfs. This is a great tune. The 
Flight on the Stork track is really great too. Uh, it's the first track from the NSF file. Like it's the first song in the data, not the first mm. one you'd find in the gameplay. But of course, as I didn't play the games growing up. This is the first song I heard from the Smurfs, and uh, you know I found it immediately likable. earlier that the Asterix was one of my favorites and that has some fantastic tunes as well and the Egypt theme is uh, I'm guessing one of our mutual favorite uh, oh, tracks from that Oh yeah game. absolutely this song is great let's give it a listen I want to continue a bit on Asterix because uh, the next one here that we're going to listen to is my favorite from the uh, game. Actually, yeah, well, for Asterix, you know, there was one on the NES, one on Game Boy. There was one on Super Nintendo, but it was from a different guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, Game Boy and the NES have different credits tunes. And I always prefer the Game Boy one a little bit more, but the NES one is fantastic as well. So uh, let's listen to the credits from the NES.
I actually get uh, actually get emotional and listen to that song today. <laughs> so I I um I really like that song. It's a great example of sound design in the NES. I mean, oh, absolutely. This this goes back to like our previous episode that was about the NES audio. Uh, we used him as an example for he does this thing with this. He makes these short staccato high pitched um, sounds in the triangle channel that right. makes it sound sort of like a wood block. And uh, that tune there is a great example of it because it starts off with that melody where there's no drums, and then as soon as the beat kicks in, there's these clicky like wood block kind of sounds, and it, it's just it's fantastic sound design. It sounds great. Yeah, no, the, what he does in the triangle channel is especially impressive in my mind. Like, it's just like, it's really catchy, but he has like, you know, like, as I'm actually a bass player in, in addition to tuba or whatever. And like, just kind of like the the subtlety that he kind of does in there, like the kinds of nice little slides and stuff um, are like intuitive to what I would do if I was kind of playing that bass line. So there's like thought put into there. And like, it's funny because we were, you know, one of the big things is that this is all kinds of, you know, he's kind of self-taught and this is his instrument, you know, like this is what he's learned. And to pick up those kinds of subtleties by listening to others and kind of thinking about, you know, basically listening to game music and picking it up is, you know, knowing that now it's, it's amazing really. Yeah. Cause it, cause it sounds very natural. It sounds like someone, it it sounds like he would have been more of like a self-taught guitarist and bassist, like the way he writes his music. Yeah, just like yeah. his little slides and, and just kind of like tasteful representation. Um, it, it's very interesting. Like I, it's 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 amazing to hear someone that's kind of the product of game composers as opposed to the product of the music at the time. I think that's really freaking cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah, and you, you brought up uh, his use of the triangle there. And uh, he actually has a quote about that, you know, about the triangle and working with the NES in general. Um, he says the NES had something special. The triangle wave channel was a good source for percussive sounds and boomy basses, although it wasn't very usable for other kinds of sounds. And he says he really enjoyed doing the music of Asterix and the Smurfs and Solstice by Tim Fallon was his inspiration at the time. Oh, and, oh wow. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. He, he said he had to learn uh, 6502 and he liked it much more than he would have imagined. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's a general impression of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, I've heard other composers kind of talk about the NES the same way. And uh, something that's funny, though, with the NES here is that if you listen closely, the music actually has some intonation problems in it where the voices are a bit out of tune. And he has another quote here explaining why it came out that way. And he says, when he was writing asterisks for the NES and learning the sound chip, he didn't find information about the right frequency values to use for the notes, uh, what you call the frequency table and uh the values of his game boy driver didn't work <laughs> and i'm just interjecting my own speculation but i'm guessing because it's a different chip you know it's like the yeah. game boy runs on the z80 the nes uses the 2a03 yeah. um i got that right right game boy z80 i think i think so yeah it's z80 based and the uh the the nes is the 2a03 which is what 6502 based yeah yeah yes uh, yeah, yeah, I think we got that right. So, and he says what he did was he created a small program for the Game Boy to play each note, and another program <laughs> on the NES to lower and raise the sound frequency <laughs> with the controller. So he sat oh, there like God. on the controller, like oh, pressing up and down, and then like so he'd play the note in the Game Boy and try to match the frequency on the NES by ear to find the right value for the registers. And he says, yeah. You know, how brute is that? I love that quote. And he says, well, it worked, but now when I listen to my NES soundtracks, I notice some of the notes are a bit out of tune. Uh, of course, nowadays I would have done it differently. So, yeah. No, the, we shouldn't. Like, that's the, the charm is there the way yeah. it is. Yeah, it's, the, the soundtracks do have kind of like a sour sound to him that his, his Game Boy music doesn't because he did that correctly. Um, but uh, I mean, we're Europeans. We're all kind of crooked and like, <laughs> twisted like, we should we should sound like this so no you should never have done it differently even today 
<laughs> so last week's episode was all about the Sega Master System and uh, related PSG audio. Uh, we played some examples of, Ber- of Berdo's uh, Game Gear music, uh, so we can always go back to that episode to give it a listen. For now, let's move on to his Game Boy music. Oh man, and there's so much to choose from here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there there yeah. really is. Uh, That's an understatement, really, yeah. And not, not only Game Boy, but it goes into the Game Boy Color as well. Oh, yeah. So it, it spans like two generations there. Yeah. We, yeah, we have a bunch of stuff queued up. Let's. Uh, the first thing I've queued up is a track called Strange Rhythm from the Smurfs Nightmare. Uh, let's give that a listen. That track is awesome. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff going on there. Uh, just the melody that kicks in about halfway through in the wave channel of the Game Boy is like so clean and it's so it's amazing, crisp yeah. sounding. Yeah. That soundtrack uh, in general is just uh, one of the absolute best on the Game Boy. Yeah, yeah. He says that one of his favorite soundtracks that he made is the Smurfs Nightmare. I think melodic melodically that is probably his strongest title. Yeah, yeah, there's tons of great melodies in there. And again, this is music for a Smurfs game. And yep. <laughs> I, I, it's it's sort of like you would assume you wouldn't necessarily expect these sort of licensed titles to have like that level of artistry and effort put into them. Um, well, I mean, that's funny. I know in America, especially like when it came to licensed games, um, Usually they were they stank pretty hard. I mean, oh yeah, we can find endless examples. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, not every game can be Bubsy. Let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, but uh, for us in Europe, we were rather fortunate because most of our development houses came from you know the generation back with the home computers, and already were quite dedicated and good at what they did. So, for example, with the Smurfs and Asterix and those kind of games, they they were fairly good. I mean, for you guys, sadly didn't get them. Right. But for us, you know, I don't sit here with nostalgia of a bad game with good music. I actually, you know, the whole game, the Smurfs or Asterix, they're good games. They're actually competent, well-made games. Not the best ever, but they're they're good. 
Yeah, and it's, it's like you said, like we did not have great examples of that growing up, so we would just assume you that... had the Disney games from Capcom, and I think kind of yeah. That, I mean, that would be a great example of like kind of the the extreme of the quality, but mm-hmm. like we also had like Beethoven Second for Super Nintendo, and I love basically... that game. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like it just just very clearly, and, and, and you know, this is a licensed game. Um, and we're going to just, you know, this is the movie that came out and we're going to put this out uh, yeah. kind of game, you know, like, let's do it. Let's get it out here as fast as we can. Kind yeah. Of yeah. And also, I mean, these games, uh, didn't have a movie attached or anything. So I'm guessing mm-hmm. that they had a little bit more time to develop. Right. Yeah. They're just using the, uh, yeah. Like the, mm-hmm. the universe or the characters, Smurfs, but Smurfs have been around for, you know, 50 years and Asterix yeah. since the sixties or probably the mm-hmm. fifties as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, these games can just kind of come whenever they yeah. want. Yeah, and I think yeah, one of the reasons we're talking about him today and the reason why his stuff isn't the throwaway content that you know Steve or I might assume these games might have yeah. uh, is because I think fundamentally he just tried to make music he thought was good, Yeah, uh, which sounds like a very simple explanation, but I, I mean, I think it's true. It's he tried to genuinely make good music, um, which is why uh, his music is fantastic. And that's the same answer you'll get from Chris Holzbeck and Tim Fallon as well. Yeah, is I was that, just gonna say, yeah, yeah, they just—it's the same answer. They just wanted to make music. They composed melodies that they thought were cool, and they put that into the game. It has no relation to kind of some of them. Some of them do, but for the most part, it's just kind of like I just thought that sounded cool, and that's the yeah. whole explanation to the track. Absolutely. Uh, we have another example here from Turok 2. Let's give that a listen. That's the, the like auto-scrolling stage. Something I really like about that track is how, like, you have that first beat that kicks in, and then it sort of repeats itself but gets a lot thicker. It layers on these sounds. And again, that's just a testament to sort of the sound design considerations he put into his music. Um, you know, he didn't just say, oh, you know, it's the Game Boy, it's a little handheld thing, you know, don't have to worry about the sound too much. You know, most people are not going to be listening with headphones or whatever. <laughs> uh, but, like, no, he, he wanted it to sound big, he wanted it to sound heavy, and uh, that's, that's, you can see that come through in his works. Um, we have another track here, also from Turok 2 for the Game Boy Color. This is the Cemetery Stage.
say just flabbergasted how much he actually managed to get out of that Game Boy. Just, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Really, really deep bass sounds in it. Master of his craft. Absolutely. Oh. Who would you say is the American equivalent to sort of like the Alberto Gonzalez? Oh, God. Uh, I, there is very few, really. I, yeah, I, um, uh, I'm drawing blanks right now. Uh, I, got, I can think of Genesis guys, uh, but I, like, you know, uh, like, John Holland was really great with Vector Man. That's right. a great soundtrack. That's a very but it's really hard, it's very, it's very hard for me to think of someone that was an American Game Boy composer. Because most of our games were really, you know, from uh, Japan. There's uh, Vert Kaufman. Of, uh, oh, oh, no, yeah. Vert Kaufman, yeah. I got. Jake Kaufman, yeah. also known as Jake Vert. Kaufman. <laughs> Vert, Vert Kaufman. <laughs> that j- totally works, I'm sure. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll do an episode talking about him at some point, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, let's continue on. Oh, this is a cool example from Metal Masters uh, for the Game Boy. No, I actually borrowed this game as a kid, and <laughs> I don't think many people play this ever. Like, I don't think... I, was it even released in the U.S.? I don't know. But I don't even know if it was released in um, Europe, for that matter, because I played it on a Spanish, like, multi-card that people had bought on the Grand Canaries with, like, 40 games on it. Oh, wow. And and that was the first game on it. So I borrowed that, and I just remember being blown away that of this one track. And I actually didn't know that was of Gonzalez until... Even though I know him personally... I had no idea he had done that track. So when I heard it recently, uh, I was quite taken aback because I remember this as like one of those lost great uh, video game uh, pieces that I remember about like, oh, who did it and where was it from? And then I found it on YouTube and I was just like, wow, there it is. And it's Alberto, of course. That's amazing. (laughs) Hey, so really quick, like something really interesting about this game before we even listen to this. This was released for Game Boy in the United States, actually. Oh, Um, so it was a US game. Mm-hmm. And then it was released in Europe two years prior on Amiga and Atari ST. Oh, okay. So, huh. yeah. So I'm not sure. I mean, again, I'm. I just kind of looked this up really quickly in here. I could be wrong, but it all says that it's composed by Gonzalez himself. So I wonder mm-hmm. if he did. I mean, maybe he had someone else doing it for the other systems. But that's kind of an interesting thing. Huh. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I'll have to check that up. Yeah. Let's. Uh, let's give the track a listen.
But yeah, that's just this is crazy, super catchy track. Um, yeah, it I sounds. Love it. it sounds like if someone took Tintin and put him in a Metal Gear game. <laughs> it's like this mix of uh, sort of like that mix of because you know if you listen to the Metal Gear games on the MSX, the style of music is very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It could it fit totally right in. So. And so we have another example from Turok Rage Wars uh, for the Game Boy Color. It's what we uh, opened the episode up with. Um, but this is fascinating. He has a quote on his SoundCloud link for the soundtrack. It says, The third soundtrack in the Turok series for Game Boy, and probably my most experimental work for that console. For this soundtrack, I wanted to give one more twist to the Game Boy sound chip, so I upgraded my sound driver with new triangle and noise bass drum sounds, uh, wave sequencing, and other cool effects. There are lots of subtle stereo effects used throughout the soundtrack, uh, so listening with headphones is recommended. And he says that he searched for inspiration in the works of Yuzo Koshiro, oh. who in my book is one of the most brilliant and adventurous game musicians ever, he says. so I can actually add something to that, though, because yes. uh, I spent a week with Koshiro a few years ago mm-hmm. in the US when he came to have a little bit of a, a stint here or in uh, Washington. And uh, during that time... Uh, I think we were in a restaurant somewhere, and he asked me, you know, "Oh, can can you show me some of your favorite, you know, video game music?" And I was like, "Okay, um, what do you want to hear?" And he said he wanted to hear something that I played as a kid mm-hmm. that I really loved to this day because he was really interested in hearing kind of like what I had to offer him uh, that he hadn't heard before. And the one track I showed him was uh, the Smurfs Nightmare Another World track from Alberto Gonzalez, and Koshiro loved it. So, oh wow! Um, wow. I don't That's think so I ever, awesome. I don't think I ever got to tell Alberto about that, but I definitely should have because yeah, uh, Koshiro has heard Alberto's music and just loved the hell out of it. So that's amazing. Um, and it's cool too because we earlier on, you know, we mentioned his other uh, compo- the other composers who influenced him. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, there's like other like Commodore sixty four composers and stuff like that. Uh, so this is cool seeing him get like later into his library of uh, games, and, uh, and so he just sort of kept finding new inspirations uh, from other game music composers. So I think it's really cool seeing you know, he has all these other European composers that he was more familiar with when he was younger, and then now he's writing new Game Boy music uh, influenced by this fantastic. Japanese composer and it's really cool this is what he came up with quite Koshiro right there that's uh, quite the immediate uh, yeah, yeah you, <laughs> uh, recognition there. yeah you can, that's why I picked that track in particular it's like oh you can hear it immediately and uh, again yeah. just a fantastic use of the Game Boy sound chip it really advanced modern sound from it yeah I should have known about this track and I would have shown that Koshiro but uh... oh right so uh, while there's plenty of other tracks we can talk about from uh, Game Boy regular Game Boy uh, you'd also made a few Game Boy Advance soundtracks um, we're going to play an example from Asterix and Cleopatra because it marks the end of an era. Um, here's what he said about it on the SoundCloud. 
The soundtrack was the last one I composed in what's known as today's chiptune style. He puts chiptune in quotes. Using the four Game Boy channels, uh, three tone plus noise plus two digital channels. It was also the last soundtrack where I used my trusty compact editor, <laughs> which served me well for over 10 years. The sound driver was written entirely from scratch in C using a GNU compiler. Uh, this music was directly recorded from PC emulation back in the year 2002. So uh, why don't we give it a listen? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting sound to it. Like, at first, it sounds like his Game Boy music. And then in that section towards the end there, you're hearing this more, like, modern uh, digital sounds that uh, put into the mix. So it's interesting. It's like a mix of Game Boy with something a bit more modern. And yeah, the percussion is uh, more modern. Absolutely. And so I asked some, uh, some questions about that because I was curious. Uh, I wanted to know more about the Game Boy Advance audio because it's not really something I've looked into before. And, uh, well, apparently Game Boy Advance audio is kind of a mess. So in the, the way he describes Game Boy Advance music, he says the console has two digital channels, which they called direct sound. You could use them to play two sounds at once and at different frequencies, or you could mix audio and software into a memory buffer and then reproduce it with these digital channels. But as you can imagine, mixing audio and software was hugely expensive um, for their CPU. So, and, and it sounded like crap. Those are his words. <laughs> <laughs> see, uh, so, and he says that Nintendo provided a sound driver with uh, that had software mixing, and that's what he used for some soundtracks that didn't need a huge amount of CPU. Uh, but for Asterix and Cleopatra, uh, he wrote a new sound driver from scratch because the game needed much more CPU. And uh, you know, for that one, he only used the Game Boy audio uh, and the direct sound channels without any software mixing. And he says that driver was a modern version of his old Game Boy driver, uh, but written entirely in C uh, with lots of new tricks. And he says it sounds pretty clean in the SoundCloud link. That's the version we played uh, because that was recorded from a program that uh, he did to compose the soundtrack. It emulated the Game Boy Advance audio. Um, so, but he said in reality, the Game Boy Advance sound was like more distorted due to the poor design of the outputs. So uh, yeah, Game Boy Advance audio, not very good. So. <laughs> well before we move on we should definitely listen to his super nintendo stuff though oh uh, yeah example yeah. from it oh geez yeah
yeah, I think that sounds great. Like again, he only did one Super Nintendo soundtrack, and some Super Nintendo soundtracks like don't have the greatest samples or sounds to the, to them. But I feel like he knocked it out of the park. Like that sounds really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he also said though that the, working with like the Super Nintendo was great. Uh, he referred to its sound chip as a true masterpiece, um, and that you know he only made the one soundtrack, but he enjoyed it immensely. And I asked him too, like what made it working with the Super Nintendo enjoyable, and. Uh, he says uh, the sound, of course. He says it was like a true sampler, only with 64K, and also had that DSP that allowed to put interesting effects to the sound. Um, and the sound chip was a complete computer with its own CPU, RAM, and audio DSP. You were free to do whatever you wanted. Uh, usually, you'd be restricted to use only a portion of RAM and CPU usage, but with the Super Nintendo, that wasn't a problem. Like a lot of uh, sound drivers for Super Nintendo games were kind of either predetermined or not very good, I guess, in some cases. So the fact that he was able to go through and use different kinds of sound drivers and basically make his own, uh, basically make his own sounds um, was really cool in this situation. And like there's a lot of like, I guess the NES, like uh, SNES, I apologize. Um, if it's a bad soundtrack, it's a bad SNES soundtrack, and you kind of know it right away. <laughs> there are yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of them were in the aforementioned uh, licensed games that we endured. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, there's like a very particular sound set that a lot of those games use, and it was borrowed amongst all of them because it was the cheapest sound set that you could actually buy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a little bit of history. We could probably talk that in a different episode. But oh, sure. there's a lot of them that all use the same sound driver because it was the cheapest option. So when you have someone like Alberto, who's like a genius about this stuff and can come up with his own thing, that, you know, that's really the way to do it. So it's really cool to see see that in motion even if it's the only time he did it yeah and so i guess last but not least uh he's also worked on some more modern stuff of interest uh one thing i find interesting is the music on series uh they were various programs for the nintendo dsi that helped you teach or like let you make music with different instrument uh instruments and sound sets like one of the programs they have is called music on electric guitar which lets you strum on the bottom screen and like will show you how to finger chords on the top screen. Uh, so uh, another program they have is called Music on Retro Keyboard, which lets you pick various like synth grooves, manipulate them, and like play live parts with a stylus uh, touch keyboard. And it's really cool. He has a groove in there called Eurostyle, uh, referring to the Eurostyle chiptune music, of course. And there's like a YouTube commercial for this game, and he demos it live. And he plays like the most Alberto Gonzalez sounding melody ever. Uh, And it's really cool seeing him do it live. Uh, Take a listen. Yeah, that's, again, like the most Alberto Gonzalez sounding thing ever. It's fantastic. So that about wraps up the main portion of this episode. We hope it was interesting and informative, especially if any listeners weren't familiar with Alberto Gonzalez's music. Um, hopefully he'll have some new fans now. Um, a lot of the stuff even we heard today, um, you know, was new to me. So it's, it's mm-hmm. great to, you know, kind of expand. So uh, it's awesome music. Yeah. Great. Uh, so if you want to find his music, um, of course, you can always dig around and find complete soundtracks in like their respective emulated audio formats. You know, stuff like N- NSF files for Nintendo music, GBS for Game Boy music. Um, 
but you know if you don't want to mess around with that you can find some of his music on his soundcloud which we'll link in the show notes and you can also find a lot of his soundtracks uploaded by various people on youtube again i've uploaded several myself uh like an easy way to look it up is just search for his name and plug in the console afterwards like alberto gonzalez Game Boy, alberto gonzalez zx spectrum uh, you know, plug in any system of interest and you'll find a bunch of his stuff on YouTube. So, and if you really want to do a deep dive, uh, his Wikipedia page, which I just learned tonight that Audie made, uh, yes. <laughs> it's awesome. It, it lists the stuff he's worked on. So if you want yeah. to hunt down the stuff he's done one by one, uh, you know, you can do that. Yeah. And that list of games, uh, he helped me actually, uh, write down. So, uh, some of those games listed, there was the first time I think publicly he, got out there he did oh wow so yeah uh, i think some of the older stuff he was just kind of like well you know no one knew that this was me before so let's put it up on wiki that's really cool that's amazing that's like uh it's cool that like both you and i independently interviewed him and like learned more about him and were able to sort of put this information out there so i i, I like exploring this sort of like unexplored uh nook of video game music history and uh you know that's built upon fantastic music so it's really a small world when you think about it oh absolutely so yeah again thanks so much for joining us audi uh this was an this is a great episode um you hit me up on facebook earlier saying like hey let's do an episode about alberto gonzalez and i had already planned on it so it's like the (laughs) it's like uh, i don't know it's it's really funny we both like independently were just like we got to do this sort of thing so um yeah i mean Alberto is someone like the whole specs and whatnot that I grew up with his music and you know my life has been fairly crazy since I was a teen and you know I've been able to befriend a lot of game composers I grew up with and work with them like Uematsu and all these people that I never dreamed of even you know smelling the hair of <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but yet uh, I will say one thing that I always make sure I do is to truly remember who my inspirations were to lead me into this life and alberto is very high on that list if not you know at the very top along with you know holspec and umamoto san and these people so uh in ever whatever capacity i ever can kind of bring up alberto and showcase his music to people who are not familiar uh, i'm very quick to do so because he truly deserves it and uh very proud of uh calling him my friend that's amazing yeah thank you very much audi Yeah, thank you so much. No problem. Hope to be back. It is time for questions, comments, and general feedback. And uh, Audie couldn't be here with us because uh, we recorded this segment the episode later in the week so we could actually uh, include comments from the last episode. So Um, I want to start off by calling out my own comment. Uh, We played... uh, segment of music from doki doki penguin land or whatever it was called for the uh sega um, <laughs> yeah. what 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 sega platform was that again that wasn't the master system right that was one of the earlier it was the uh, sg 1000 yeah right and uh you said like it felt janky and weird and like i left a comment saying like oh it's just in 4-4 basically uh but no no you get to have like i told you like a and i told you so <laughs> moment because um yeah like, i counted 4-4 the whole time and it like it synced back up together but i guess i wasn't listening that closely because it did get weird in the middle trying to do that uh you were correct there are a couple measures in there that have like two extra beats to them Mm -hmm. uh so you could count it as like a six four measure or two four or ten four like however you want to 
make that work out in the end. So uh, you were right. It's it, it is a it does have a weird meter. So <laughs> it definitely sounds that way. Like I remember listening to it. It's just like kind of you know a lot of music is written in eight bar phrases, and it sounded like there's like a nine bar phrase in there or like something like that. So uh, yeah, that's that's funny. Well, okay, yeah. I feel a little bit vindicated then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I was wrong. I should know. I'm you know I play the drums and know how to count, so I should be able to spot that. So. <laughs> So our next comment comes from uh, XYZ. Uh, this is actually interesting, and I completely forgot about this as being a limitation, but uh, here, here, I'll just read what uh, they have to say. Uh, the weird issue you were having is because Devil Mask artificially introduces a limitation of channel C must be muted if uh, using its frequency for noise, which as stated is not actually chip limitation. So yes, it's interesting that that's something that Devil Mask does, and it kind of actually kind of cancels out that. It mutes channel C uh, to let that happen. So it's not actually a chip limitation. It's just something that Defle Mask does. So that's ah, a great, gotcha. yeah, that's a, that's a great clarification. Yeah, and he had another comment here. You were talking about how like the OPLL was like the value brand uh, version of the chip, uh, but he he pointed out and clarified that it literally stands for OPL Light. <laughs> so yes, it, it is so literally it, value it, brand. Absolutely, and something yeah. he, we didn't point out that uh, uh, XYZ points out here that's also important is. Uh, and this is their comment. Uh, the OPLL was a nine-channel chip. It was only six-channel if you had it set to rhythm mode, and the latter three channels because of the five drums. So you could kind of set. There was two different settings, and I completely forgot to bring that up. Uh, the oh yeah, OPL. that's right. Yeah, so that that's you know we were talking about it, and I was like, ah, you know. In a future episode, perhaps where we talk about like MSX music or something else, mm -hmm. it would be uh, a good idea to provide examples of like the different voices and like the two different modes. Uh, some yeah, something we sort of glossed over since yeah. a lot of the focus was also like PSG audio, but uh, yeah, because yeah, that was something that confused me in the past too. Because I remember reading, it's like it's nine channels, but six channels. Then you ha have a mode where you are forced to use some as like percussion, and you know it's a little odd how the chip is divided in that way. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next comment comes from Vera Lovely. Uh, you know, we had mentioned that the VRC7, which is one of the audio expansion. Uh, things for the Nintendo Famicom like has the same sound as the OPLL like the FM audio used in the Sega Master System and the MSX uh, a very lovely corrected us and pointed out that the VRC7 actually has a completely different set of preset sounds than the OPLL and that they would guess that they were designed in-house by the Kukea Club staff uh, that's Konami since it sounds a lot like their PC88 soundtracks yeah, it's, it's interesting, and, you know, it, it's something that, you know, I've listened to, I mean, I don't know how many times I've listened to anything that's in, been done in the VRC7, uh, you know, I've obviously listened to uh, LaGrange Point a couple times, but I, you know, it's something I really should have thought about uh, in terms of the comparison between the two, and it's interesting, uh, as it was pointed out, uh, actually, Ratcheck, who was listed here, did send me uh uh, the various different patches and showed that they were completely different. I've been messing around oh, with them. Cool. And they, they are completely different. Um, and I guess that's what's cool about it, though, because like the OPLL has many different forms. Um, and I was told by I am a, I am a track man, uh, some mm -hmm. of the various different formats. Um, so it, it like the, you know, in terms of what you could actually pre-program to it, there's different pre-programmed sounds um, that were kind of shipped with different OPLLs. So there's a couple different flavors of it. So that's something we can get to in a future episode. But it was something that I, I guess I was uh, honestly wholly ignorant to uh, before right. I kind of realized that. That like You kind of think of like uh, chips as being a chip. Like a 2A03 has what's assigned to a 2A03. You wouldn't think right. of a 2A03 with other sound effects to it. So 
or like right. with other you know with three squares and uh you know a triangle and so, like a bunch of different other things that are not on right there. um but there were different outloads for this because obviously you could set the different preset sounds so you're that, right as you were designing it yeah yeah there was i was even shown a video by i am a track man that shows a different a kind of a comparison of someone who actually took uh, an opll off the uh, you know the ym2413 uh, off a sega master system took the chip off and was able to run it through uh you know this the slot on the look range point cartridge that has uh, oh no way yeah <laughs> the vrc7 and you can play the music back with the different sound effects so there's a so he's he's putting it through to ex- clarify further for the listeners he's taking uh, a game soundtrack that uses a certain sound chip mm-hmm. and is running it through a variant yes. of that same sound chip mm-hmm. um uh, or that same sound set, basically. Uh, it's originally from a Sega Master System game, now coming out of a Nintendo Famicom cartridge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's actually, right. it, it wires completely the same, basically, is, is what I was told. I Am A Track Man is the, the guy behind all that. He kind of told me. So it's something, though, that I'd love to talk about in a future episode, so maybe we'll shelve that. But, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. And I'll attach that video here. You kind of need an account to sign up for it. Um, but I tell you, it's probably worth it because there's lots of other interesting information on there. So you can get a free account. I'll, I'll attach that to the notes. Excellent. That's great. Uh, the next comment comes from uh, SSS Key. Uh, and actually, Steve, he's someone I talked to you about before in the past off of the podcast. He made some music under the handle of uh, Optomon, I believe. Okay. And he, uh, he made NES music by ROM hacking, uh, which is something I want to talk about in a future episode because... Uh, it's a really like, I you know I think unintuitive and strange way of making NES music. Um, when you look up a lot of ROM hacks, usually the music is not altered. Uh, probably just because that's like really a complicated thing to do. You have to be skilled at ROM hacking and also be good at working with the sound chip and come up with something new that sounds nice. So I think that that never really aligned in most classic ROM hacks. You know, mm-hmm. they usually do graphics and other stuff. But uh, he did some really cool Castlevania ROM hacks and. Uh, he, he had a comment in response to our NES episode talking about the Echo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we mentioned, like, the Konami type of Echo, which uses, like, a, a simple, like, a note sustains and then drops to its lowest volume and then sustains on that for a little bit. Yeah. And just by sort of filling the spaces in between with these soft sounds, it makes an Echo. And uh, so he has insight on that from his, like, hacking perspective, and this is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, he says, the Konami Echo is a pro- uh, programmed algorithm in many of their game engines. He's seen the hexadecimal uh, opcode EC in the non-early Konami uh, NSF files uh, to indicate subtle low-volume echo. So he says he remembers implementing it in custom modifications to the Castlevania 3 soundtrack, but doesn't remember seeing it for Castlevania 2, where he did more like two-channel echo. Uh, oh, interesting. And he said that Contra definitely had it, though, as we mentioned uh, in that episode, and was probably the first uh, of the Konami soundtracks to use it. And he said that, if he remembered correctly, Hidenori Meizawa briefly referenced it in the interview he did some years back. Uh, we brought up like how they had to make an echo effect uh, for the particular notes. Yeah, that's actually a great interview. I, if I recall correctly, and watch me get a comment here because I'm wrong, I, that might have been the interview where he discusses that he actually made the VRC6. Uh, I don't. Oh, I know okay. he's only done a couple, and I think there's the, the any, all the interviews he's done have been just absolutely amazing. Uh, and it's amazing how much you know he was doing behind the scenes for all this stuff. He was he's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Cool. Yeah. So thanks again for the feedback. Um, I haven't even reached out to SSS Key yet about uh, you know talking about his work in a future episode, um, but that is something I'd like to do because it's a really 
you know, if you're ROM hacking a game to make new music, that gives you a very intimate and unique perspective on like what that specific sound engine was capable of. Yeah, so. absolutely. Oh yeah, so early in the Sega Master System, Steve pointed out that there's like two different versions of that SN chip that make the PSG audio, and he you weren't sure uh, like what the differences were. Most discussions online just linked back to the chip that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, but Hun Retro Geek says that he thinks the different SN versions only differ in the noise generation because the earlier ones are 15 bit and the later ones are 16 bit, so they take twice as long to loop. And he actually linked me a demo on the SoundCloud of him playing around with the noise channel of it. It's just like a noise demo. Yeah. Uh, so I'll link that in the notes because it's really cool. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out and thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And so it is time for Name That Game. Uh, here's the track we played last week. Let's give it a listen again. And that's a very cool track from Metal Gear 2 for the MSX. And that was guessed correctly by Vera Lovely. Good job. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they guessed it correctly like, within like an hour of that <laughs> podcast going up, I think, actually. So it, we're, we try to find a balance. Like we want the songs to not be too easy to guess, but we're also not trying to like dive into obscure FM Towns Marty selections. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. It, we, we don't want to be... If we can build up a bigger listener base and like have a sort of competition for it. like we, i would definitely like to try and make it harder um but you know we're not trying to be like ridiculous with it so yeah so i'll have to shelve all my casio loopy examples for a little bit i guess right <laughs> <laughs> so uh sort of following that theme of like trying to make something a little obscure but not super obscure uh let's give a listen to this week's track Good luck, everyone. Hopefully you'll be able to figure it out. And so something I'm quickly editing into this episode, because I just learned about it tonight, uh, the night before we're uploading this episode, uh, Alberto Gonzalez's company, Abbey Light Studios, uh, just recently released a program called Musicverse Electronic Keyboard for the 3DS. Uh, it is a music creation program. Um, I highly recommend everyone checking it out. Uh, you know, if you have a 3DS, get it. Uh, support Alberto Gonzalez. And uh, it's cool. You can share music through the Meverse and our Twitter, Facebook as well uh, through this program. So uh, you can also like export uh, audio files to an SD card, I believe. And uh, I think he said he's going to share like recreations of his older tunes, um, some of his tunes uh, for Musicverse. So that's that'll be something to look out for. So uh, oh yeah, and also there's a commercial for it, and uh, he's in the commercial. You can spot him. He's like on a subway, set of subway steps, like dodging a bunch of music notes flying his way. It's kind of funny. 
And so for our closing song of the week, this selection was picked by Audi. Um, this is one of his favorite Alberto Gonzalez tracks, uh, mine as well. It is called Another World, and it is again from the Smurfs Nightmare soundtrack. And thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.